girls are complicated. of the Christian Feminist Podcast on Greta Gerwig's adaptation of Louisa May Alcott's Little Women. I'm Marie Haas, who's moderating today, and with me today are Carla Godwin and Ilea Grubbs. Hi, Carla and Ilea. Hi. Hi. So, as always, let's introduce ourselves for anyone who's new to the show. Um, Carla, you can go first. Sure. I am Carla Godwin. I am from Minneapolis, Minnesota, which is where I live. We're currently buried under, I don't know, two to three feet of snow that just won't leave. So I'm feeling fully February. Um, I live here with two of, with my two daughters. And uh, let's see, I work as an operations manager at a foundation. I'm also the founder and director of an organization called She Is Called. And we start conversations for women who lead in, in spiritual spaces as clergy, uh, theologians, or thought leaders um, doing podcasts and such for that. So, yeah. Wonderful. Um, Ilea? Hi, my name is Ilea Danner Grubbs, and I live in Birmingham, Alabama with my husband and our two young children. Um, I'm an educator by profession, and now I homeschool my own kids, and uh, I work in ministry at our church, and uh, I'm excited to be here today to talk about this. Thanks. And I'm Marie Haas, um, regular panelist on the show. Uh, I have a PhD in literature and a master's of divinity with a certificate in women's gender and sexuality studies. Um, right now, I'm living in Connecticut uh, with my spouse, Jonathan, and our 11-month-old baby, who will be one year old when this airs. So that's he's really the main thing I'm doing right now, um, besides some uh, research assistant and uh, teaching assistant work. Oh, happy birthday to him. <laughs> Thank <Yeah>. you. <laughs> um, so before we get into discussing this film, we can get a little background on it. Um, I feel like I probably shouldn't have to say this for such a well-known story, but if you're worried about it, there will be spoilers to the story of little women <laughs> and what we're talking about here. <laughs> um, so uh, Greta Gerwig's film is, of course, an adaptation of Louisa May Alcott's novel, Little Women. This is a beloved children's classic, and it tells the story of the four March sisters, grown-up Meg, independent Joe, gentle, Am- uh, gentle Beth, sorry, and spoiled Amy, um, as they get up to mischief with their neighbor, Lori, and grow up in New England under the care of their loving Marmy while their father is off at the Civil War. Um, the novel, when it was published, uh, was actually published in two parts. Part one came out in 1868, and then in response to it being such an immediate hit, Alcott wrote part two, and it came out a few months later in 1869. Both parts were very successful, and together they've remained successful as one of uh, the children's novels that probably many of us read growing up. Um, because it's really pretty much always been so popular, there have been like a whole bunch of film and television adaptations beginning as early as 1917 um and uh, one one television um no uh one film adaptation actually um was a depression era one starring Katherine Hepburn 
um, is a standout adaptation. But probably uh, the one that most of us are most familiar with is uh, Gillian Armstrong's 1994 adaptation with uh, Winona Ryder as Joe. That was another uh, female-directed adaptation that was well-received when it came out. It got uh, three Academy Award nominations. So that's just a little bit of background on what's being adapted here and what went on before with adaptations. Uh, Ilya, uh, Ilya, sorry, uh, could you give us a little information about uh, Greta Gerwig's adaptation? Yeah, this version, um, it came out last year, 2019, um, at Christmas, and uh, it was written and directed by Greta Gerwig, um, and she had, you know, won two Academy Awards for writing and directing Lady Bird. Um, so she was already well-known. Um, and this version stars several big name and several up-and-coming actors like Saoirse Ronan and Timothée Chalmay, who both worked with her on Lady Bird, um, as well as Meryl Streep, Emma Watson, Laura Dern, and several others. Um, this version is one notable change from the book and from the other versions is that um, I think it's worth noting this one is not done in chronological order, which is interesting. Um the two halves, the two halves of the book, like you talked about, the two different books that were combined into one book, are um, kind of uh, intermingled, which gives a sense of kind of the past influencing the present, and um, this idea of childhood resonating into adulthood um, that I was really struck by. I think it's really interesting that it portrays like the characters as a mosaic of all of their experiences as, as opposed to just like a list of fixed personality traits. And I thought that was really, really interesting. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, Carla, could you tell us a little bit about how the film's been received so far? Yeah, absolutely. So, so far the film has been received quite well. Reviews are, are mostly very positive. Um, and if I've seen negative reviews, they've been on one or two of the actors, not on the adaptation itself. Um, it received six Oscar nominations. It won Best Adapted Screenplay. Um, but Gerwig was not nominated for Best Director this year, which has been a bit of a, of a, of a hubbub and a scandal um, just in, in how difficult it is for female directors to get nominated for an Oscar. Uh, she was nominated, as you said, for Lady Bird, and had she been nominated this year, it would have been the first time in history, in all of Oscar history, that a woman would have been, a female director would have been nominated twice as be Best Director. So that's one of those fascinating tidbits that is um, just difficult to flesh out as we talk about this this story and the story of, like, I don't know, how a woman gains credibility in creative work and how hard that can be for women still. Um, Gerwig is truly genius, I think, in the way that she, she does this, as you were talking about, Elia, um, with the way that she splices the time frame and the way that she tries to pull in um, the story of the novel's publication almost as a framing for the story itself. Um, I thought that was a really interesting overlay. So um, anyway, it's been very well received and also maybe hasn't received some of the, the, the accolades that it could have. So I did not know that about the, there's never been a woman that's been nominated for two best directors. That's fascinating. Right. I was really yeah. sad. That's <laughs> no, somehow surprising, but also that. not surprising, you know? Exactly. Right. right. I think it's just still surprising every now and then because we feel like, oh, things are so much better and they are so much better. Right. But the fact that that development, that the attention to female directors is so recent in history that there's not enough, not enough time has gone by for it to have happened twice. It's just, it tells us how new, <laughs> how new the struggle mm -hmm. is or how recently it's been uh, developing, I guess. So, yeah. 
Uh, well, before we go on to the reading section, we will, we'll get into some of the uh, things that are specific to this adaptation, like the, for the framing we've been talking about. Um, how about we each tell a little bit about our previous experience of Little Women and sort of how that colored what we felt when we were going into the film. Um, Carla, could you go first? Sure. Um, so Little Women is one of those books that I read probably in middle school at some point. Um, and I remember loving it. And like anyone who has any sort of creative ambition, I resonated deeply with Joe and with the feeling of just feeling stifled and sort of stuck. Um, <clears throat> I do remember at the time uh, that I read it thinking how Joe seemed very different from the rest of the uh, the rest of her sisters and the rest of the women in the novel. Um, and so one of the things, and women in general, like what women were often, how, how women were often portrayed. And so one of the things I appreciated, I think, about this film was how uh, Gerwig and the rest of the, the cast, act, and the cast actually like really tried to make each woman really textured and tangible so that what she was feeling and needed was as real and as valid as the strong feelings of Joe while still centering Joe as a protagonist. Um, I just thought that was really well done and I appreciated that. I do remember the 1994 adaptation and, and watching that and loving it. I think, um, uh, yeah, one of my main feelings about this book has always been, and this story has always been, um, that sort of transcendentalist ideal uh, that was always present in the, in the language and what people were trying to be and how Joe did or didn't fit into that um, that's the thing I've been curious about. Thanks. Um, I think we all <laughs> resonate with Joe in different ways. Uh, uh, Ilea, what was your previous familiarity with uh, Little Women? Little Women was one of the first pieces of real literature that I read. I read it in third grade, and I was so like proud of myself for reading this real book, you know. Um, it was... <laughs> Yeah, it was a real, like, um, kind of coming-of-age moment for me to be like, I'm, you know, I'm not reading kids' books anymore, you know, this is a real book, and so I, so it always kind of held a special place in my heart, because I remember um, just kind of getting lost in this story, and um, really, you know, loving this, this long, detailed account of, of the, the growth of these characters, as opposed to the, you know, short kids' books that I'd read before, um, and, and I did love the Winona Ryder movie, um, Growing up, we used to watch it at Christmas every year. Even though it's not really a Christmas movie, for some reason for us it was. Um, but my my sister, my mom, and I all loved that movie. And um, and then, you know, I, I what you were saying about the the transcendentalism. I think it really does make an impact. I'm my sister, and I have talked about the idea of like. Um, the family, the family ethos of always trying to better yourself, being something that really re resonated with us coming from a conservative Christian background. Kind of the same idea was there, and Joe's kind of frustration with that, and um, meeting other people who didn't have that background, who were like, "But why though? <laughs> why are you trying so hard?" You know, like it was, it was a real um, that was a real touchstone for us as far as. Um, kind of identifying with the struggles um, inwardly and outwardly um, to, to always feel like you have to better yourself and always kind of this, this introspection and everything. So that was something that, that meant a lot to us. Thanks. Yeah. I think I had a little bit of a different experience than you two when I read Little Women when I was small. I think I was like probably 11 when I read it and I got so mad at it. <laughs> that Joe doesn't end up with Laurie that I, I I'd never read it again until after I watched the film and then I went to read it again. <laughs> oh, I was mad with that too, for sure. 
Um, I mean, I saw the the 1994 film a few times when I was growing up too. And as far as resonating with the story, I mean, uh, it resonated with Joe, of course. Like um, we've we, we talked like uh, you, you guys have been talking about, but also what uh, what you're saying, Ilya, about this sense of trying to better yourself. I think. Um, growing up on the mission field, I also resonated with the, the sense of mission in the family and having to, you have to sacrifice for a mission. So that was something that was sort of similar in my family. But there's also, with this this story, Little Women, it has a sort of a special place in my family because uh, my grandmother, who was a university drama teacher for a long time, and at one point she did her own stage adaptation of the, of Little Women, she identified with it so strongly that she actually changed her name to Joe legally. Her name is Joe, and um, wow. as it turned out, also she had four daughters, and she largely raised them without her husband there, and um, my mother, who was named Beth, was a third of the four daughters and she was the peacemaker among her siblings and uh, she died this last May so it was really uh, it was kind of emotional and a little bit hard for me going into the film actually thinking about her and about the mother and the family life in the film and you know, watching the Beth in the film die <laughs> um, right, and, yeah. you know it, sort of, it just made me kind of wish even more I could just thank my mother more for the family life and the love that she gave me and my siblings when we were growing up but um, those are some real emotional parallels yeah Yeah, Yeah. for sure I was going to say too like am I the only one I don't actually identify with Joe as a character oh really I'm a Meg like totally okay (laughs) (laughs) and I think I'm maybe the only person in the world that would admit that (laughs) but like usually people either are an Amy or a Joe I guess maybe but I don't I always feel like but Meg tries so hard to do the right thing you know yeah right well, I think this film gives a little bit of a new life to Meg as well. <laughs> right. Do you, are you all familiar with Enneagram or does it like nauseate you when I bring that up? How do you, what's your feeling about that? I don't know Very about nauseous, it. but continue. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I get it. I was watching, I actually watched a documentary about Louisa Mal- Alcott <clears throat> just in prep for this. And I was struck in that how much she seemed like, like a challenger, like an Enneagram eight. And I think I was, I hadn't thought of Joe that way or Alcott that way. Um, and so I think I was a little surprised by how clearly she was con- she was like a, a challenger, like constantly pushing against things. So that made me question my identity with Joe just a little bit because I don't think I am that way. I think Joe Joe truly is. Like she just has a deep drive to stir things up and to move constantly and to always be in a state of kind of activity. Um, and so as much as when I was a kid, I sort of wanted to be Joe, I'm not sure that I really am. And I get curious about, again, like when you just center one character primarily as the one who's important, you lose some of the texture of the rest of the characters. Mm-hmm. So again, like in Gerwig's ad- adaptation, I felt like, oh, I actually see the texture in the other sisters and who they are. And and they seem to have more of a depth than I remember them having in some other adaptations and in the book, actually. So... Yeah, that's something that really stands out with this adaptation, and it's such a like rich and emotional film on so many levels. Um, but th- there's a few things that the adaptation in particular brings to the foreground that we can talk about. There's a lot of a uh, focus here on Amy and her marriage. Then there's the narrative structure that we've been mentioning and what's going on with that and how it relates to the portrayal of the pressures of publication. 
Um, and also we can talk about the focus on ambition and self-sacrifice with Joe. Um, so moving into our reading section, then I guess, uh, Ilya, could you start us off with talking about Amy and her marriage and what's going on with that in this film? Yeah, it's so interesting. Gerwig really brings out um, kind of to the forefront what has always been in the background, uh, which is this idea of the economics of marriage. Uh, there's two conversations that really bring this issue forward. Um, one we're going to talk about a little bit later um, with Joe talking to her publisher about her heroine needing to be either dead or married by the end of the book. Um, and that one is kind of contrasted with Amy in this conversation she has with Lori about uh, the economic realities of being a woman. Um, saying outright that she wants to marry Rich. Um, and Lori kind of challenges her with, you know, well, don't you think you, you should probably be in love with him? And, and she really pushes back on that in a, in a really open, frank way about uh, not being able to make money and um, about the details of uh, how marriage is really a financial transaction, um, what she's going to lose if she gets goes into a marriage e with a rich man or a poor man as far as her possessions, her rights, and that kind of thing. Um, and Greta Gerwig actually said that that was one of her favorite scenes in the whole movie um, because it's a place where she gets to kind of say out loud what what's implied in the book. And I know some critics have suggested that um, this, that speech is a little uh, in, anachronistic or maybe like too woke for the Civil War era. But that's really not true. It was actually a big topic of discussion um, in private and in political circles at the time. Uh, Alcott herself was a feminist who worked to secure more rights for women. Um, there were lots of laws surrounding women's property rights that were being debated. Um, and, uh, and especially because both the Alcotts in real life and the March sisters in, in kind of the story were being raised in this um, forward-thinking transcendentalist household, um, it definitely would have been something that would have been debated and discussed um, openly. Um, Alcott wrote in a lot of her letters that she was much afflicted by the idea of having to marry her characters off. Um, she said uh, in a letter in 1869 that uh, girls write to ask who the little women will marry as if that's the only end and aim of a woman's life. Um, but she swore, I won't marry Joe to Lori to please anyone, <laughs> which I just love that she was oh, so like, yeah. stubbornly like against that one thing that we all wanted at the end of the book. Um, and, and Greta Gorek, she loves dyads, right? She loves contrasting different characters, different scenes. Um, and, and we see that. So we have Amy deciding to marry for wealth while Joe is deciding to marry off her heroine for a paycheck. Um, and we also see Marmy and Meg marrying for love and then struggling with their poverty. Um, and, and Alcott's mother did struggle with poverty and, and kind of a feeling of resentment against her husband um, that's, that's pretty well documented. Um, and then on top of that, and I love this, and I, I didn't find many commentaries that talked about this, but Aunt March's character is basically like the Shakespearean chorus throughout the movie that is um, telling us periodically why it's so important for them to marry well in that time and in that society um, and how hard poverty is on women. And, and she even at one point, uh, Joe challenges her and says, well, you're not married, Aunt March. And she's like, it's because I'm rich. You know, I don't have to. And, that was the way she managed to stake her independence. Um, and I've seen critics say that that was hip hypocritical of her. She's always wanting them to get married, but she's not married. But I, I disagree. I think that she's the ultimate realist. And she sees 
um, you know, the the March family and the struggles that they have with poverty. And and she is kind of the the contrast to the March's transcendentalism and this idea that what matters most is just, you know, being happy with nothing and, and doing what's right for humanity. And she says, yeah, but it helps if you have money to do it. Um, and there was an article in uh, Vox that I read that was saying that the the idea that Gerwig has to to emphasize these ideas out loud makes the ending more satisfying. That the ending of Little Women, in a lot of ways, is unsatisfying to us. Nobody wants uh, Laurie and Amy to get together. Nobody wants um, Joe to marry the professor. We're all just kind of like, oh, oh, okay. Um, but but Alcott actually said in a letter that she intentionally came up with this kind of unattractive professor to marry Joe uh, to be odd, to be strange. She thought it was funny. Um, and, and she married Laurie to Amy because she wanted him out of the way so that people would stop pestering her about marrying him to to joe so she's basically trolling everybody yeah it's 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 (laughs) like she's basically just um trolling the people that cared more about you know following literary conventions than about good literary craft um so so of course it doesn't feel satisfying she wasn't satisfied with it Um, but being more open about the restrictions on women both inside and outside of marriage and really inside and outside of the story um it really pulls the idea of marriage out of this idealized romantic dimension and sets it, you know, ex- just plainly in the real world, which is something that Joe is struggling with in the story herself. So I think it works brilliantly. Um, and Gurig does it without making the characters seem cold or self-centered. You know, they're doing it. They're thinking of their families. Amy talks about, you know, there's no one left to take care of the family. Joe won't get married, you know, um, Meg won't marry Rich, you know, Beth can't, so it's up to me. I've got to save this family by by marrying um, well. And um, and in, in real life, Alcott ended up financially supporting most of her family. I mean, she, she supported her family while they were all together, but after Anna, her older sister's husband, died, um, uh, Louisa May Alcott ended up supporting them with her stories. Um, and when her youngest sister died in childbirth, she raised her the um, Abby May's child. And so, you know, she really did live out this idea of this, you know, financial burden that she's writing about in the story. So I think it's important and valuable that, that this idea of marriage and uh, as a financial transaction and whether or not you're going to get married is going to affect your financial future. I think it's important that that's brought out into the open in the movie because it was one of the governing forces in their life at the time. And while we might understand that in like a, a vague way, we don't really fully grasp the weight of it without the explanation out loud, like the contemporary audience would have would have grasped it imp- implied. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that speech with that Aunt March makes to to Amy about her needing to marry for the sake of the family that works so well in the film because it's transposed away from. She makes sort of a similar speech in the book to to Meg, but of course Meg doesn't follow this advice. Um, but uh, it, it just works so well to change the focus of that to Amy here in the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that moment for Amy was so <clears throat> validating in the film. I felt like it gave her character like a centeredness. She wasn't she wasn't um, sort of buffeted by uh, whims. She actually had like a driving point. And so her marrying, I mean, when she was uh, engaged or, or going to be engaged to someone who Lori was concerned she didn't love, she was so centered when she talked to him about why she would do that. It wasn't, um, it wasn't like she was just uh, materialistic or anything. It was, it was a drive to, mm-hmm. to care for, to whatever. And I felt like 
having, again, researched a little bit Alcott's life and the poverty that they lived in, that they grew up in, and what Joe or what Alcott, you know, watched her mother suffer under that poverty, um, I think that it, it's it's a bit of a misunderstanding to say that it was it would be materialistic to marry for for money, you know, like that. Meg's struggle with just wanting something pretty <laughs> was was not the struggle that they watched their mother grow up with. It wasn't just that their mother wanted silk instead of rough cotton. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It was yeah. that she literally wasn't sure how she was going to feed her her children without working to the bone. Like she. And they did. They worked to the bone. So it wasn't just a, hey, we could have this dress or that dress. It was, I'm not sure I can feed my children. It was that level of poverty. And I think sometimes we forget those um, those financial realities and strains and that they actually lived through, that Louisa May Alcott actually lived through. So the, the financial part of this, I just, I find, uh, while in the book, even it's a little bit glossed over and it's a little bit lighter than it would have been in their real life. Yeah. It's uh, a little bit of a fantasy, it seems yeah, like. Yeah. It was a reality for those, for the, for her and for her characters, I think, you know. Yeah. Um, let's, move on then to talk about a uh, focus on the, the narrative structure which is something that stands out about this adaptation then because it's related to what's going on with the marriages for Joe and Amy that we've been talking about um, so the narrative structure I think there's uh, it, it's interesting and effective and this cutting back and forth technique I know some people who went to see it with me thought it it's, would be confusing if you didn't know the story already and that that could be true but if you do know the story it seems like it supports this commentary that the film is focusing on about um, Joe and her writing and about the pressures of publication and what's demanded for female characters in fiction so because uh, in this adaptation of course we get a lot of intermingling of Alcott herself with Joe, which, you know, is very warranted to do because Little Women was, of course, semi-autobiographical and Joe was Alcott's fictionalized portrait of herself, but it's especially emphasized in this film, even down to these little details like Joe switching from one hand to another when one of her hands is tired out while yes! she's writing, which is something that Alcott so did. Cool. Yeah, I loved seeing that. Um, we see Joe selling her sensational fiction uh, anonymously at first, which Alcott also did. And then towards the end of the film, as we've already mentioned, we see her writing the book Little Women itself as she's working feverishly on this novel and she puts her own name on it. Um, And in the novel Little Women, Jo also writes a novel at one point, but it appears to be a version of Alcott's own first adult novel titled Moods and not this metatextual insertion of Little Women itself into the story. Um, although at one point after Beth's death in the novel, she does write a short story for a magazine that might be referencing her short story about the March sisters giving away their Christmas breakfast that would later become the beginning of Little Women, so there might be a little bit of an element there of that, but it's uh, obviously much more emphasized in the film that Joe is actually writing Little Women. Um, and throughout the film, we see Joe struggling with the strictures we've already mentioned of what's expected for female writers and the female characters that they write. And these expectations are relayed to her by this uh, figure of the, the one male publisher that she's working with most significantly. As we've already mentioned, he says that women in the story have to either die or be married by the end. This would apply not just to the heroine, but to 
all of the the female characters and of course by the end of this story this film as well as the novel the sisters have all reached one of these two fates um so joe's driven by these economic pressures of needing to make a profit off of her writing to support her family just like amy has the pressure of wanting to marry well to support her family and she's these are pressures that she's frustrated that the high-minded Professor Bear, her, her love interest, seems not to understand, of course. And Joe has to conform uh, to this expectation for her female characters, not only in her sensational fiction, but also in her own little women novel we see in the film. So I think that cutting back and forth in time works with this kind of focus in the film in two ways. One is pretty obvious. That's at the end of the film. Um, the technique of cutting back and forth that has been used all along seems to slide into it seems like these two parallel fictional tracks rather than two different times. On the one hand we have Joe talking with her publisher about the novel's ending and overseeing the production of the book and then on the other hand we have Joe's romantic scene with Professor Bear, the scene Under the Umbrella, which was the title of the corresponding chapter in the book. Um, and you get the sense that you don't really know for sure if this is the reality in the film, like a time that's just previous to Joe's discussion with the publisher that she was sort of withholding from him at first, or if it's just, it, it only exists in the novel that the films Joe March has written. I think it sort of leans, seems to lean more towards like the second option. So the film seems to be saying, like, look, these same pressures exist now for the female characters in this film. And here you go. Here's Joe's romance that we know you need to see. It's complete with this dash to the train station, which it doesn't happen in the novel, but which nods towards our own current romantic comedy expectations of having this mad dash to the airport. Um, but it's, like, so self-conscious and satisfying these expectations. It seems to be asking, should we really need... Uh, to meet these expectations for this story and for this film to be successful. So it's really kind of a clever way of ending it. And I think it fits in with the tension um, that you've just pointed out uh, that Ilea just said that Alcott wanted actually to create in the second part with how she was handling Amy's and Joe's marriages. Um, and of course, uh, near the end, we also have that scene where Joe, after she's turned down Laurie and she's begun writing her novel, admits to Marmee that she's lonely, even though she feels like she shouldn't be. And we have her letter to Laurie saying that she's willing to accept him. That's a letter that doesn't exist in the novel. Um, this scene, sort of combined with the, the ambiguity of the ending under the umbrella, uh, seems to be taking yet a, another kind of twist here, saying on the one hand that there's this unrealistic expectation that women in fiction f find fulfillment solely in romance and then on the other hand there can also be sometimes this equally unrealistic expectation that a woman be fulfilled alone in a garret with a pin and that's it um, and this this is also a pressure in the portrayal of women and of women portraying themselves in relation to perhaps a certain like distorted kind of feminism sometimes and it's not that the solution would simply be heterosexual romance and marriage and that should envelop everything but maybe that we shouldn't demand that women replicate this harmful ideal of uh, enlightenment individualism and self-sufficiency that shouldn't be 
that we should be allowed to admit loneliness without being accused of being unfeminist. And also, I think here's where like uh, real feminism's emphasis on community and interdependence is significant too. Um, actually, I think the warmth of a female community among the members of the March family is part of the enduring appeal of Little Women. Um, but also uh, in terms of the, the narrative structure of the film, I think the second way that this technique of switching back and forth in time ties in with Alcott's own publishing experience uh, is that the two distinct time frames, uh, as has already been mentioned, call attention to the two parts of the novel and to what has to happen in the second part as opposed to the first. So the four sisters can all get to their demanded fates of either death or marriage. Um, the death and all the marriages happen in the second part of the novel. Uh, and in the film, I'd have to watch it to be sure, uh, watch it again to be sure, but um, I think that the two temporal tracks like largely correspond to the two parts of the novel, except that the, the earlier time frame sort of overlaps with the second part of the novel in including Meg's marriage and um, Laurie's declaration of love for Joe sort of in the, the past part of the, the framing. Uh, but anyway, uh, when Alcott was writing the first part of Little Women, she wrote it very easily in just six weeks because she was drawing on her own childhood experiences largely. But then it was this immediate success, this great demand for a second part. And like we said, uh, people wanted to know what happened to the Little Women. We have this alluded to in the film when the publisher's children asking, what happens to the Little Women? And Alcott, <laughs> of course, knew that they had to be married that had to be what happened to them and some of the titles that part two was printed under included um good wives nice wives oh. and little what? women married <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> yeah so this was this was definitely what people wanted to read um and so Alcott's old, older sister Anna had already married, so that was fine. Her younger sister Elizabeth had died, so that was imported into the book. But neither Alcott nor her younger sister May looked to be getting married anytime soon, and Alcott never married. Um, so it's due to the same pressures of publication that the film draws attention to in Joe's conversation with the publisher that Alcott had to depart from her autobiographical materials and invent these marriages for Joe and Amy kind of against her will here. Um, so splitting the film into these two different temporal tracks just seems to highlight to me how the novel was originally in these two parts and how the fates of the characters, um, not just Joe, but also Amy's like, fairy tale like European romance with Laurie that allows her for, to marry for love but also to have the money to support her family um, that th those two marriages have to do with what we expect from or for women in fiction even though they sort of uh, Alcott was sort of playing with uh, how they worked out uh, like you talked about <laughs> what, what, what did you guys feel about the, the film's ending? Yeah, I agree. I thought that the the duality of kind of the fictionalized ending and then like the the reality that it kind of implies about what really happened to to Alcott slash Joe. It, it's kind of they blend into the same person at one point. But I think I think it really does kind of draw uh, an emphasis on the theme of you know the economics of marriage and the economics of women in that time, and also it it like we said, like it makes it more satisfying because you see the, the ending that everybody knows, but then you also kind of see the, like the reason for it. 
Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, I felt like what you said, um, Maria, about uh, it's almost a satirical ending, right? The rush to the train station and all of that. Um, it's like she, like Gerwig sort of overemphasizes the satisfaction that we see mm-hmm. in this match in order to kind of say, is it, what is our what is our drive toward that satisfaction and why is this the way that we tend to find it in these stories? How How is it that women's stories are framed as this is the point of culmination and the place where all the satisfaction can be found, right? She she almost over-satirizes it, I think, or, or satirizes it in order, order to, you know, draw attention to that, that conflict. And the fact that Alcott didn't marry... I, I just, I love the way that Gerwig seems to go, hey, you all asked us to plop this in, so we're going to plop it in super heavy-handed and super, you know, big. And at the same time, we're going to parallel Joe's discussion with her publisher that says, really, really, this is what you want? This is the thing you're asking for? Um, so I love the fact that that allows that ending to stay a little bit like, um, uh, you, you get to kind of draw your conclusions as to whether that actually happened or whether that was a... Um, you know, like a fantasy kind of version of ending that was just uh, an acquiescence to an expectation, you know. Um, so I appreciated that about the ending a lot and 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 did, you know, because I have been trained, <laughs> did find it satisfying. I have always kind of felt Professor Bear as an interesting um, romantic interest. I, I think, uh, you know, I had a similar feeling of just like, what? When I first read the novel and she didn't marry Laurie, but I think I've always found this sort of mysterious uh, person um, who showed up to be an interesting uh, way to approach, like approach romance and the end of that story. I guess I, I feel like, in, even in the conversation about like self-sacrifice and what does that mean, I, I think I have always wondered about um, relationally like do we go with the thing that that feels really good or do we sort of sacrifice our ideal and marry the steady or the like the solid thing you know what I'm saying so that that question that Joe seemed to ask and then draw the conclusion toward this like not ideal or romantic end but like a almost a pragmatic end I thought was I've always been curious about I've always found that to be a really interesting um dynamic so yeah and so after if, oh sorry oh, go ahead I was just going to say, after we get that satirical, like, over-the-top romantic rush to the train station and everything, she does give us the actual satisfying ending of Joe watching her book be published, right? Because that's the actual drama of Joe's life is trying to become an author. And in real life, I mean, Little Women was the one that kind of set Alcott on the path to consistent publication and consistent income. And, and, And so, like, it's a quiet moment. You know, she's just watching the book being published and it's kind of even out of her hands. It's kind of a passive moment for her, but it is the culmination of the actual story arc of her as a writer. And so after this big, loud, over-the-top satirical, you know, romantic ending that everybody has to have for the story, we get the 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 idea that sometimes the climax of our life is a very quiet moment of victory in, in watching something come to fruition that you've worked for your whole life. I think that's really beautifully done. Right. I love that, Aaliyah. I think I watched it with my daughters and I remember feeling a deep level of satisfaction watching the book come out and watching Joe actually, that's where she felt her like uh, deep groundedness and her sort of self-realization. And it was in that moment. And I remember thinking just that the fact that the film and Gerwig brought those two things out and said, both of these things exist. Both of these things are moments of satisfaction and really highlighted the book as a place to, to go as, as in just watching the film, 
to feel that same sense of resolve, I just felt like was such an offering to my, my female children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You, you yeah. get to not just see this one portrayal of, of a, of a culmination or a satisfaction. You get to see this other one too. And that, and, and neither one I think needs to be left out. Like I think Meg's insistence in this film that her desire to marry and have a family are as valid as Joe's ambition. I thought, again, that articulation, that very clear articulation of that dynamic was really useful and really helpful to be like, oh yeah, absolutely. All of these things exist and you don't have mm-hmm. to, have, you don't have to be all drive, all drive or all relational, you know, both of these things exist and, and women feel them in different weights and in different ways in their, throughout their lives and in their whole, you know, in their whole selves, we feel them differently. So, um, I thought that was really helpful for me and like letting my children sit and watch this and have a sense of what they could be as humans. Um, I really appreciated those kinds of moments of dynamic, like, uh, all of these things can exist, you know? Yeah. And it's just part of the fleshing out of the characters to such a greater degree of humanity than maybe um you see even in the in the book that you've been talking about too that we have this um affirmation of meg and her choices here too uh but i was going to say earlier also that if uh like ilea was saying alcott was sort of playing around with her audience and choosing this odd professor as the the romance for joe um, I think Gerwig is kind of playing with us and going to the opposite extreme <laughs> with Professor Bear in this film, who's such a like satisfying romance for Joe and meets our expectations of like being this really hot <laughs> lead to uh, go along with, with Joe and have this uh, conflicts and their fiery argument, well, on Joe's side, fiery anyway, and their dancing where they seem really drawn to each other. Uh, these things aren't present in the novel um but it seems to be part of how she's building up to um that that ambiguous ending and the contrast that we've been talking about mm-hmm. yeah um carla did you have uh more you wanted to talk about about like ambition and self-sacrifice with joe in the film yeah i think I have more just like questions I would love to talk about with you all because <laughs> I think one of the things that feels present in the film and I think even in what you were saying, Ray, about um, just the portrayals of women that were given, right, that you either are the sort of woman scribbling away in the in the attic um, and that's your great drive and ambition or you're the woman who gets married and and has your culmination in your family and your romance and and we are very seldom given the opportunity to see both of of those things someone who is <clears throat> ambitious who has a drive who wants to do something and then also has relationship and i think the question i think is actually real for women that does ambition drive out relationship do you have to sacrifice relationship for the sake of ambition and and vice versa um so i think that's just a question I have in general that I would love to hear you all talk about a little bit and that I think I saw in Joe differently in this in part because of what you mentioned Ailea about I think it I think you did about um Joe actually admitting her loneliness uh and and having to like deal with the fact that she was doing the things she wanted to do and she felt a craving for relationship um so I think that's just a question I'd love to talk about um and then I think related to that this whole, the film layers really interestingly 
what it looks like to be a woman driving toward a creative ambition. And I think I, I read an article in the Atlantic that I'll share for the passing on, but, um, the writer of that article, John Madison, was talking about how really the whole film is like layering Gerwig's experience and Alcott's experience and Joe's experience with like, what does it mean to be taken seriously as a female artist? How do you be ambitious and do the work that you do and be taken seriously? And so um, that that thing, that drive toward ambition, how that looks for a woman, even now that that's still, that's still tricky to be taken seriously as a woman and as an artist, and then how do we like continue to allow ourselves relational satisfaction and if we have that ambition drive toward ambition so i think those are just questions that i i'm curious about and what you all saw in the film and what your experiences are with your own ambition and what you want to do with your life and how that plays into your relational self um yeah well i know like to your first question like loneliness and kind of the the struggle between relationship and ambition and career um, it, that was something that Louisa May Alcott struggled with and wrote about in her letters quite a bit um, in one of her letters she was talking about Anna her older sister and her happiness with her family and you know kind of her domestic life and she said um, I sell my children which is what she called her stories and they, though they feed me they don't love me as Anna's do and so I thought that was that's such a like you can hear the pain, right? That like I'm doing what I love and it's doing what it what I want it to be doing. Like I'm successful at this, but I still have this kind of loneliness and I still, you know, have this area that it, it's not like, well, now I have it all together, you know, or or I'm perfectly happy with it. You know, she struggled with this idea, you know, and, and it comes out in her writing, I think, very effectively. And I think um, you know, one of the things that Greta Gerwig said is that she she did use a lot of Louisa Malcott's letters and journals and stuff yeah. to augment her screenplay. And I think that that really, um, like you said, makes more of the characters three-dimensional and it also pulls in a little bit more realism into the, the story. It's not just kind of this fairy tale of, you know, and then she lived happily ever after because she had a p published book or whatever. You know, you, right. you get this idea that, you know, there you can be successful and still have other areas of your life where you know you you wish things were different and she she talks about that you know she she didn't really ever have um a, a love life that she wanted she never really fell in love with there I think there was one man that she had kind of a, a thing with but but that that was an ongoing thing in her life and and I right. think that it's important that that be brought in like you said the the idea that there's this dichotomy in feminism where you have to be all career or you know or dot 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 um I, I, I just think it's a very um, nuanced and well-rounded approach to what it's like to, um, you know, be a, a woman and honestly a human, you know, trying to right. pursue all of these different aspects of, of right. fulfillment. I think that's the fact that you just use the word human, I think, is one of the things that I just find um, most interesting in this conversation. There's a line in the movie that when I, I heard it in the movie, I thought, oh, that's not in the book. I know it's not. And so I'm curious, either it's just a heavy-handed addition that's a bit anachronistic or it's it's something else so the the line is this um joe exclaims to marmy women have minds and they have souls as well as just hearts they've got ambition and they've got talent just as well as beauty i'm so sick of people saying that love is just all a woman is fit for i'm so sick of it and um that whole thing uh, the idea that we actually are whole humans who who do have drive, who do have ambition, and so like 
that the idea that the only satisfaction that we could have is, is love is such an in, uh, insufficient way to understand women. And yet so many stories for so long have been told as if love is the thing we're supposed to be driving for, right? And so for her just to, to kind of insist on, no, actually I'm a full human. I actually have all the complexity that, uh, that a man has. It's just that I haven't been allowed to show all of that, right? So I think that whole idea of the female experience of ambition versus the male experience of ambition is just simply that they, it's never been, in my opinion, the fact that women didn't have it or didn't have an experience of it. It's just that we have allowed full humanity or full expression of their humanity to men, typically, while for women we have expected them to limit their their expression or their experience to a certain part of their lives, just the relational mm -hmm. part of their lives, you know? So. Mm -hmm. Oh, and, and that quote, when I went and researched a little bit, is actually from Alcott's novel, Rose and Bloom. So she did write those words. She wrote them in a different novel. So again, I love what Gerwig has done to like actually take sort of the full scope of her work and her thinking and her life and to say, here's what we're talking about. Here's the thing we're trying to talk about. And that is what female ambition looks like and how that plays into her, her broader relationships, her family, her, you know, her self-sacrifice, what, what happens. And and I think one of the things that's interesting about uh, Alcott's life is that she did, like you said, use her work to support her family. She actually was the primary financial support for her family throughout much of her, her life. Um, and that, that, uh, so that idea that, that ambition somehow is the opposite of self-sacrifice for women is a fascinating thing because part of what we mm -hmm. allow men is that their ambition is actually part of what they give to their family, right? We have very rarely allowed women to have that same experience of their own ambition as part of their familial experience, you know? That's so true. That's yeah. so true. Oh, this is so great. And I think uh, also part of the complexity that we see this question of ambition in relation to talent for women being dealt with in the film is that it applies to like all the sisters and not just Joe as well there's they have that they, they each have their own talents that they could be ambitious about that they could pursue if they wanted to like Meg could be an actress Beth has this talent for music and Amy of course does have a great deal of ambition in her pursuit of art but it all it works out with different ways and different sort of compromises or different choices to not even have ambition in some cases for the the three sisters like um joe at one point in this film adaptation urges meg to like run off with her and be an actress which is not <laughs> not a fantasy that's built up in the novel um but meg of course doesn't make that choice um beth doesn't seem to pursue like have any kind of ambition in relation to right. she has her talent. huge piano talent right yeah. so like her, her musical talent is a thing but you're right she doesn't seem to have a drive or an ambition for that to be recognized she just experiences it as her own which is is a fascinating relationship to talent right it's not invalid mm -hmm. yeah so and then and that's especially yeah i was going to say that's especially <laughs> contrasted with amy yeah. and her relationship to her talent which is if i can't be best then i don't want it at all you know, and, and seeing that coupled with Beth's, I can be whatever I want to be for myself. And then Joe's, I'll be whatever I have to be in order to, you know, support my family and myself and everything. Like all of those different relationships to your talents. It's, it's fascinating. And especially together, seeing them side by side. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And Amy, I think, is a little more complex in this film, too, in that it's like you see her comparing herself to like this 
verging on impressionistic art <laughs> as she's doing yeah. sort of bland um these bland still lives and she's like giving up in frustration that she doesn't have what she sees as genius um even though she has this great amount of talent but she's trying to transmute that talent into something that will support her uh support of her family as she tries to become um like this social leader and uh, marrying well and taking her place in society and having her art and her talent there be just one of her ornaments <laughs> she talks about. Right, right. One of the things I found a quote from Gerwig where she talks about actually the reason to do well or to have ambition to do well is to get another at bat. That's how she described it. You, you, you do your best and you put forward really good work because you want another chance to do more work. And um, that, that I feel like is just, is, again, one of those moments of, of interest in terms of ambition. And like, I think um, watching women do their work and the fact that sometimes an ambitious woman can be like cast aside even by other woman, women, or there's a, there's a sense of maybe losing relationship. If you are the one doing the work, the one driving forward, there's that sort of fear of losing relationship. And yet that desire for more work, the opportunity to continue your work is one of the things that is ambition. And I think that that uh, sort of tension for women often between driving toward doing the next bit of work because it's a thing you want to experience, a thing you want to do, and the threat of losing relationships, whether they be female or, or romantic relationships, uh, is just an interesting tension uh, that I feel like this, this movie is... Uh, interested in playing with how that how that happens for people so yeah definitely um well i think we should probably move on to the passing on section here soon unless there is any last points you guys want to make i just want to say like we haven't really talked about it yet but um i do think that i was struck by the scope of the cinematography um it's such a small story in terms of like the subject matter you know it's not a war movie it's not a sweeping epic it's just a story of an ordinary family but the cinematography and the musical score as well like they constantly remind you of the larger scope of the story they're constantly pulling out to see this bigger world and it really it really focuses on this idea that that it's it's not just a, a family it's a piece of history and it's a piece of society and it's a piece of humanity um, and it reminded me, like, I'm teaching a, a Bible study on Ruth right now, and I titled it, like, The Power of an Ordinary Life, because it's it's kind of the same thing, right? It's the story of a small, ordinary family doing what they need to do to survive, and in the process, they end up literally changing the world. You know, I think that's amazing, and I love that Gerwig is able to communicate all of that um, throughout the movie. I just, I think that's really powerful. I love yeah, that. I love beautiful. that. I think that that whole thing of making the particular epic, like there, you know, like the human experience in its particular is the is the whole story of humanity, right? Like that. Yes. So yes. It's such, a, it's such a good. Thank you for pulling that out because I felt that too. You felt like a grandeur in these tiny moments that I think was. You're right, like a visual slash musical experience, um, and that's yeah. Yeah, and giving the emphasis and the dignity to, like, everyday life is something that the film points out that uh, the Joe in the film is doing with her writing in Little Women as well, and something that Alcott did in yes. <laughs> her Little Women right. um, yes. that was quite kind of revolutionary in the portrayal of these 
uh, young women as characters that their everyday life was something that was worth writing about, worth learning from and entering into uh, for us as readers. I did think about like the other thing that we might want to talk about for a second, the idea that um, in the book, uh, faith is very central to the characters, you know, um, personal development and family life. Um, and it's really kind of something that's left out their their Christian faith and everything um, in the movie. And I, I understand why they did that, because that wasn't really the focus. They're focused on different aspects of growth um, in the movie. But I did think it was interesting that that was notably absent from the movie. Yeah, in the novel, there's, in the first part of the novel at least, there's this structuring device where the four sisters are imagining themselves as pilgrims in Pilgrim's Progress and each have their individual burden that they have to get rid of as they're improving themselves. And (laughs) all of that is lost in the film, which again does does make sense because that would be a little bit bit hard to portray maybe. But it does seem like um, some sense of like the the presence of God in the ordinary in the transcendent in these everyday uh, moments could have combined with what we've been talking about with the cinematography like that wouldn't be foreign to what's going on in the film here it's just not explicitly stated really right I think I mean you still get the the glimpses of Joe trying to find her better nature, right? She's the one that you really still see that in her moments when she's lost her temper and she talks to Marmy about it and, and Marmy admits that she's spent most of her life being angry, <laughs> you know? Um, those moments of sort of fighting against rage are there in terms of the self-improvement piece. I think, I guess if I have a sense, and this may be uh, a bit problematic in the way that I'm thinking, but I feel like if you're if part of what you're trying to draw forward is a woman's experience with her um, ambition and her creative energy and, and the familial, I think it, it would be deeply interesting to bring, bring in the Christian side of the story in part because so many early feminists were actually driving from their Christian ideal that they were made in the image of God, which was, mm-hmm. you know, Good both point. not what was being taught and also what they knew in their intuition and in their own reading to be true, right? So, but, but the, the truth, what, what was being taught to those women, even the women who were able to push through and push around it and see something else in their, in their feminism, those early feminists, Alcott being one of them, um, what Christianity has often taught is not that. So I think that it would, it would be really hard at this point in our history to pull forward Christian themes and to pull forward the feminine as a, as a thing that would, we, should, we could question or talk about in a way that the way it's been portrayed is maybe not the only way. Um, so I feel like it would have been a really tricky thing to do mm-hmm. right? <laughs> in our current, in our current yeah. state. Yeah, that's really insightful. I think that's, that's very true. Well, let's move on to our passing on section now then. Um, for myself, I'm going to recommend two other 19th century works that we've talked about on the show before Ellen Montgomery's Anne of Green Gables and Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre because I was just uh, reminded of these works um, as I was preparing for this episode because uh, when we talked about them before on the show we talked about how they consciously departed from the flat and idealized portrayals of children in the happy death narratives and the other Sunday school literature of the time and this is something that Alcott also does in 
um, in her novel, and uh, you see it, a reference in the novel to the happy death narratives at one point in Little Women, where it's saying how Beth's simple death scene contrasts with like the high-blown speeches of the children who die in the stories. Um, so uh, there are other works that were very important in the um, sort of giving real detail and life to very young women in the in the stories. Um, as Alka also did, and as her characters are sort of so richly developed in this film adaptation. Uh, mm -hmm. Carla, what's your recommendation? Yeah, I have two. I have to pass on two. One is the Atlantic article that I referred to by John Madison, and it's called One Way the New Little Women Film is Radical. And it's the one, it's the article that layers sort of the ambition of Gerwig, Alcott, and Joe, and kind of talks about what that creative impulse can be in a woman and how each of them, those three, experience it and how Gerwig sort of layers all of that in the movie where it's kind of becomes autobiographical for her, for Alcott, and, and then there's Joe, the character. Um, so that is, it was just an interesting article, the way that he layered that and, and pulled out ambition and creativity as a female experience, which I, I kind of, a, a man writing that is a fascinating thing to me, but it's a good article. Um, and then the second one is an LA Times article um, that is discussing Gerwig's not being nominated as best director and actually is pulling out um, research that has been done about the way that creativity is viewed for men and for women, where if you like j make a study, a thing gender blind, you put something out there, um, a piece of work, um, people will, will judge it one way and then you, you let it be gendered, a male, a male author or a female author. And the, the same article will be or the same piece of work will be critiqued more if it's a woman who made it and, and more accepted and more lauded if it's a male who wrote it. So just that um, study as to why is it so hard for a, a female director to be nominated, it's not just that we're new in this struggle, it's actually that our brains have been conditioned to not see female cre creativity as um, big an accomplishment as we allow it to be for men, that that's actually a neurological setting that we have at this point, so. Mm, interesting. Yeah. What about you, Ailea? Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I loved that Atlantic article, too. I read it. Um, so it was really good. interesting. Yeah, it was really good. Um, I'm going to recommend a book by Daniel Poole called What Jane Austen Ate and Charles Dickens Knew. Um, it is a fascinating um, kind of encyclopedia of a way, although you can read it straight through as a, as a book, um, about the ins and outs of life in Victorian England. Um, which is not the setting, you know, obviously Little Women is set in America, but it's set during the same time period. And a lot of the British politics and the British um, kind of societal norms were, you know, carried to America and were some of the things that they were fighting against. They're, they're kind of trying to break away from some of these um, more hierarchical societal structures and, and restrictions. And um, I kept thinking about that book while I was, you know, researching and, and watching Little Women because a lot of the things that Amy's talking about, about um, the, the marriage laws and everything, those came from the, the British marriage laws that had been in place for a very long time about property and, and things like that. So it's mm -hmm. a fascinating book in general, but especially for that time period to look into um, kind of what went without saying when you're reading Victorian literature or even American literature set in the, the same time period um, as far as 
just kind of the societal norms that everybody understood to be the thing that you did and and how that influenced the daily life of the people, whether they were rich or poor or high society or whatever. Um, it's, a, it's a really interesting look into very small details of life during that time period. Wonderful. That's super interesting. Just sorry, real, real quick. It's super interesting to me because part of what we were saying about what Gerwig has done is to try to draw out things that would have been givens in that book, right? Like it would have just been given. Yes, what she's exactly. saying is, no, we should pay attention to the fact that the given here was this. So we're going to say it explicitly so that we know what we're dealing with, like to make it visible. Exactly. You know? Yeah, yes. there's so much lurking in the background that it just has to come forward to really get to the, the character's motivations. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you if you have a topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle at chradionetwork, and check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Carla Godwin and Dilea Grubbs, I'm Marie Haas. Tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss theories of Christian sexual ethics. Until then, in Essentials Unity, in Non-Essentials Liberty, and in all things love.